0: <clears throat> hey, Regirou, how you doing, sir? Yes, <clears throat> yeah, I am a little nasal. The instrument is a little nasal today. If you remember, I think when I came in last week, we were—I detected a a slight tickle uh, when we were recording last week, and um, that tickle turned into um, a guffaw. <laughs> it wasn't just a tickle it was a it was a scratch it was an itch it was a big laugh yeah i've got um on saturday i was really uh very clogged and fever so i i clearly caught a cold somewhere wouldn't be surprised if i caught it at the bruce springsteen concert in um because that's i had just come back from that in milwaukee and uh Heck, it seems like Bruce got sick there, or somebody in the band did. They canceled at least three shows, uh, and could be more. They haven't disclosed who, but uh, so maybe I got sick there because uh, it was soon after that concert indoors, right? No masks, sitting next to people. Yes, I know, I know. I, I don't know how I justify it. Reg I don't know I wear a mask when I go to the grocery store and I wear a mask when I go to indoor places and then I go to a place with 20,000 people and I and I don't wear it so I don't know I'm triple vaxxed so but I got a cold anyway I didn't get COVID I got a cold but does it sound no I'll battle through it as I always have all right okay let's do this thing here we go episode 356 uh, three S's, star, smile, song, strong. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. Uh, I didn't get it that time. Sorry, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain... Whoa, look at that. What? <laughs> it's going to be one of those, huh? Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com, or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. There we are, right there. Just waiting for you. Of course, we're not just waiting for you. We are expecting you to get out there. This is an active relationship, not passive. If I'm doing stuff on this end of the mic, you gotta do some stuff on the other end. So get out there. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody. Who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcastic, and it should be theirs, too. Get out there and fly your freak flag. <laughs> if you like what you hear, go to WGNRadio.com, hit the trap for the podcast section, then get in there, you'll see Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic listed, Click on that, and oh my gosh, whew, you will just be confronted with podcast after podcast after podcast. This keep scrolling down and scrolling down. Lots of blabbing over there in the last uh, almost, now what, seven years? I've done 355 episodes, which means welcome to 356 yes yes before we get started yes i'm sure you can hear it i will not try to mask it because it's impossible i'm certain that you may detect a slight nasal not really a hoarseness per se but certainly not the uh the usual forceful baritone of my uh my vocal instrument yeah I got, I got a cold again not covid just uh the, the common cold uh and uh you know i didn't get one all year and here we are and it's officially meteorological spring in fact we're getting close to the official spring it's this week but uh But it really has not been very spring-like, at least here in the Chicago area. We've had snow. We've had more snow in March than we've had in December, January, and February, I believe. (laughs) We had more snow in March than we had all winter. And to this point, we still haven't broken the 20-inch snow uh, plateau for the winter of 2023 and I, apparently the average uh, amount of snowfall is like 40 inches in the Chicago area so we're we're not even at half and somehow I got a cold and you know I, I'm tracing it back probably to see when I started last week uh, I was detecting a, a small tickle in my throat. It was, uh, it, 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 it branched into a much bigger, it was more than a tickle. It became a, a, a guffaw, a big, a big hearty laugh. I sensed it last Wednesday, which not, maybe perhaps not coincidentally, was the day after I had attended the Bruce Springsteen concert. And so Bruce, is, Bruce got sick after that one couple of weeks ago uh yeah i mean uh he's canceled at least three shows if not more um hasn't explained why just said due to illness but i was in milwaukee to see him uh a few weeks ago on march 7th and uh and he 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 canceled his next three shows and i don't know i mean i i record this podcast so i don't know if he's Finally, gotten back on the road, but he certainly canceled um, a good week's worth of concerts—three shows over a week. No word if he is the is the uh, person who is sick or not. Another cloud of mystery. I'm not. I, I'm not understanding Bruce Springsteen of late. I, I've, I've I've been through that discussion. I'm not going to continue it. But I don't understand this. This uh, this cloud of secrecy over him over the last several years. It's 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 just very disappointing and 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 silly. When this tour started in February, within a couple of days, one of his band members, Steve Van Zandt, had COVID and had to miss a week. COVID has been going through the E Street Band on this tour since it started in February, and <clears throat> here we are in mid March, and several members have come down with it and have missed a few shows because of it and they have always been identified it's like oh you know Steve Van Zandt has COVID Jay Clemens has COVID Nils Lofgren has COVID Susie Tyrell has COVID a couple of the backup singers have COVID but the show still went on because there's so many people on stage now 19 people that they could cover up for them Steve Van Zandt when when he was gone Nils Lofgren could cover his guitar parts and then when Nils Raffern got uh, got sick, Steve Van Zandt returned and he could cover his. Uh, Bruce has a, a a four or five piece horn section, so even though Jay Clemens, the saxophone player, had to miss, someone stepped in and did it. So they they were able to cover for those who had COVID. The reason that the speculation is it's probably Springsteen who is sick is because suddenly they canceled it or they postponed the shows. They will make these up, but they postponed the shows. And so that tends to believe that it's the main guy. It is the boss of the operation. That or it's Max Weinberg, who is... There is no one else who can take his place on stage. Yes, there's a percussion, percussionist, but I don't know if that person knows all these classic E Street band fills uh, of the current and past catalog. So it could be Max Weinberg, or it, it most likely is Bruce Springsteen, because he certainly, during the show, was not adhering to any kind of COVID protocols at all. I was shocked. At the um, the closeness and the con- throughout the show, at the closeness and the contact that he was having, not only with former members, with former with members who had formerly had COVID, so they still could have had it in their system, sharing microphones, hugging, singing right in their face with Steve Van Zandt, you know, right up in front of right in, in Jay Clemens's face, arms around each other, arms around. Nils Lofgren, uh, right up next to Susie Terrell, all these people that had COVID, right up in front of people's faces that, that circled the stage, right up on the lip of the stage. He's right into people's faces sometimes. Even went into the middle of the crowd to sing 10th Avenue out at the end, once again surrounded, right in people's faces. He even grabbed a beer from a random fan in the crowd and downed it which may have been fine to do 4 or 5 years ago but not sure if that's so smart anymore but i think he loses himself in the you know in the in the performance but um, so that's why i don't think it's max weinberg because max is the only guy on stage who is uh, <laughs> who is following social distancing he stays behind that drum kit all night as though and, and then maybe he's not doing out of out of his own um, diligence, he—that's where he's got to be. But he's not moving around. Everybody else is—is is kind of mobile with the guitars and and um, and accordions and and fiddles and and percussions and and, and big bass drums running. around. Everybody's running around. The horn guys, everybody's walking around stage. Certainly Bruce, uh, but except for Max Weinberg, he's sitting in that chair all night up on a up high on his drum kit. So he's probably the safest, most diligent uh, COVID social distancer in the E Street band. So I'm doubting it's him. But if it's Bruce, if you were if, if you if you announced that everyone else who, everyone else who had it, you said they had COVID. Little Stephen won't be here today, he's got COVID. This guy's got COVID. It was always announced. And then suddenly due to illness. And we don't know who it is and what the illness is. So why why the mystery? Why why create the situation where people can speculate on things? Just say Bruce has COVID. Is he is he does he think he's he's impervious? Does it, does it show him to be less of an I, I, I I'm mask? I don't know what his deal Is He less masculine? Does he feel that he's he needs to project this uh, image of uh, of masculinity and uh, and perfection. I don't know. It's very strange, but whatever. So anyway, if Bruce got sick at the concert, then maybe I did too. That's where I was going with that. So I felt a tickle early in the week, and by Saturday, I was in full-blown cold mode, totally clogged, on and off fever. Um, I'm not as clogged. I can at least breathe through my nose now. But clearly you could hear that my voice is a little nasal. But at least it's not hoarse. At least there's some strength to it. So bear with me. You may hear me clear my throat every once in a while. I'm just wondering, from your standpoint, the listener of the podcast, um, is it interesting to see over a 50, if if you're a weekly listener, just wondering about this out loud, Um, I'm not sick all that much. Uh, certainly once again, though, without wearing a mask all the time, I, I know over the last two years, I never had a cold cause I was wearing that mask. You can say what you will about a mask. Maybe it didn't stop COVID. Everybody got all crazy about wearing a mask, but it certainly stopped a cold. I did not have a cold the last two years really until I, you know, I got COVID, um, But in terms of a a common cold, from twenty to twenty-one, and even twenty-one to twenty-two, I don't think I really had a serious cold because I was always wearing that mask in public. So, and don't ask me to to explain my mask-wearing logic because, like almost everyone else's, it it has fatal flaws in it. You know, I'm talking about Springsteen not um, uh, adhering to COVID protocols I, I I really have to call you know I have to call myself on it too I'm not in, I'm not face to face in people's faces who've had covid or, or perfect strangers for three hours like he was during the concert but uh, you yeah, but I'll be honest I mean you know uh, I don't know how I justify how do I justify going to that concert indoors with you know 15 17 20,000 people? Nobody wearing a mask in the audience. How do I justify not wearing a mask there? But yet for some reason, when I still go to the grocery store or I go anywhere else in a public place like that, grocery store, any kind of store, uh, then I wear the mask. (laughs) What does that represent? Why am I doing that? I don't know. When I go to the airport, I wear the mask. Which makes sense. But then why don't I wear it when I go to a concert? Why don't I wear it when I go to a restaurant? I don't know. Sadly, we've all let our guard down, but I'm triple vaxxed, so I'm I'm fairly confident. Uh, I don't have COVID, which is good, but I certainly have a pretty major... I've had a major cold. I'm getting over it, so bear with me. Anyway. So what I want to talk to you today uh is about um what I've begun talking about over the last couple of weeks was my recent trip to the Middle East. And um last week I told you about our the beginning of our trip, which kinda end which began on a somewhat cha- chaotic um note, but uh All's well that ends well, and we wound up uh, getting into Israel safe and sound, and all ready for uh, a- an amazing trip of which it was it 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 was life. It was a once in a lifetime uh, trip, and I've been fortunate to have gone on many of these once in a lifetime trips, having been on a safari, having been to Australia, having been to some of the most historic and beautiful cities in the world as well as in the United States. I've been very fortunate, love to travel, explain that to you and, um, and have taken advantage of that, um, and, and, and certainly have leaned into my love of travel and my inquisitive nature and my kind of, um, internal need to explore and question and learn. No question about it. When you land in Israel, you feel like you are in a foreign country. No question. It looks different. It feels different. It sounds different. One reason I love to go to London is because I speak the language, obviously, right, English. So even though it's a foreign country, no question, it it looks and feels different. It's amazing how, when you can speak a, the language of a ta- of a city or a country, when you can speak the language, it really uh, cuts into the foreign or the alien uh, aspect of it and makes it much more familiar. Because the ability to communicate, you, 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 we take it for granted when we're in our you know in our in our home where everybody's speaking the language, but when you go to a country where they don't speak the language. That you speak, uh, you really are confronted with, I'm in a different place. Now, thankfully, in our case, in my case, English is somewhat of a universal language. And because Americans travel so much, most people in foreign countries at least speak some English. But many times they don't. So that's why I've always felt very comfortable. Comfortable in England because is even though it it is you know thousands of miles away from home and figuratively and literally uh, it's it's a foreign country in every sense of the word but the ability to communicate cuts down on that um, that barrier that you sometimes have but landing in Israel it felt different. No question about it. Beautiful country in many ways, both the rural and the urban. Uh, I have to say Israel, Jerusalem. We landed in Tel Aviv, but we stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, interesting city, very modern in some areas, and then, of course, uh, still retaining its ancient Cobbled streets, personality, where many of the religious and historical sites are in the old city of Jerusalem. But the new city of Jerusalem, very modern, and I must say, very clean. Wow. Very clean. You can eat off the streets and the sidewalks in Jerusalem. Very clean. It's, it's it's impossible not to notice it. It's just really clean and um, it feels ancient even though there is a, a, a you know a modern part of it. a, a good part of it is still it still these stone structures uh, you know and and, and and you see these huge, stone-based cemeteries. You know, we the cemeteries here in the United States are all kind of pastoral. You know, all with grass and they're all calm and they're all pastoral, but in Egypt or in um, Israel, the cemeteries are all stone. They're all stone monuments, above-ground monuments. In many cases, ancient and present day but there's it's it's not pastoral it's not all these big grassy uh kind of serenity it's still serene it still feels very meditative but it's it's much more everybody's buried next to one another and there's all stone monuments or stone grave sites and they're going up mountains, or they're in you know sort of valleys because it's a very hilly area there, and they're up in the valleys or up slopes of mountains. And so uh, you just there's just a lot of and and, and it's a very cramped city, very tight knit city in terms of its of its uh, architecture. You know, yes, there's but even you know even the major streets in, in the new part of the town. Uh, you know, where, where all the bigger buildings are, business buildings, hotels, and things like that. Still feels like a very, you know, like a metropolitan, urban, 21st century city. No question about that. But but it doesn't take long to get into some tight areas, even within that. It's an old city. And, uh, and you know, like it's in, in, in the United States, you know, when you look at some of our, Oldest cities on the East Coast, like New York and especially Boston. Boston is a terror to drive in because the the, the streets are from two hundred and sixty seventy years ago, or, or you know, even more than that when you think about it. You know, the pilgrims came in the sixteen hundreds, sixteen twenty, and roads and trails and, and so called streets were were carved out by horses, and as they built cities and even started to pave the streets, the the cities were all along these these previously cut-out pathways where horses and people walked, and there really was no system. Newer cities were able to build a grid system, easier to get around in, but some of those our earlier cities on the East Coast are, are there's there's some streets you can be driving on in Boston, where one minute you're going south and next minute you you're going north and or east. You don't know where you're going. It's crazy to drive in Boston, and to some extent that's how it is in in uh, in Israel too. Despite it being a very modern city in some areas, it's still an ancient ancient. Uh, in Jerusalem, uh, ancient ancient city, and it feels that way. It looks that way. It's very impressive. It's um, it's it's, it's 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 exciting to look at. It's very captivating and compelling when especially when you're when you're standing up above and looking over and just doing a three hundred and sixty kind of panoramic view. Uh, it's uh, it feels ancient. It it certainly does. As I said, you, you feel like you're somewhere new. Or somewhere old, I should say. Certainly, somewhere different. Of course, I, I mentioned to you before that we went to the um, to to some of these religious sites in the Holy Land of Jerusalem, and I brought with me my Nativity Three Wise Men when we visited the the city of uh, of Bethlehem and the Church of the Nativity supposed spot where jesus was born but i also had to bring another travel companion with me as i said to you before uh, i've always been interested in the jewish culture and the jewish religion i am i am not jewish although i did an answer an, an ancestry.com and found that i indeed am about two and a half almost three percent jewish Oi Who knew, Bobola? <laughs> not hard to really uh, understand, though, because uh, having half of my, uh, you know, half of my my heritage Polish and half of it Italian, not surprising. I'm not sure where it comes from. Most likely it's probably from my mother's side who was Polish. And so most likely there was some Jewish influence because there's a lot of, you know, Polish Jews in the migration. But the Italians are very close. And there's a lot of movement in in previous centuries. So there is some, uh, you know, especially in, in Italy, in, in, in places like... Um, you know, Turkey and, and and places around the Mediterranean. Uh, now, that's obviously not Jewish, but the Jews had been moving and migrating all over uh, areas there. But most likely, probably my Jewish, whatever Jewish blood I have, all 2% or three, almost 3% of it, is most likely from my mom's side. But I do have some Jewish blood in me, which may explain why I love using yiddish words and uh, i've always been interested in the jewish culture and the jewish religion so i was very excited not only just to see some of the religious sites but just to to soak up and embrace um the jewish culture and at, at 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 the at the home of it right one of the things that I have, I have, you know, I, I have all these little toys, and you know, I'm a collector of many things. And a few years ago, I found this mensch on the bench, which is a stuffed animal, not animal, stuffed figure of a of like a Jewish rabbi. And uh, you know, you you press his hand, and he and he gives you the um, the definition of many Jewish words. And he's got the voice. He's got the sort of talks like Jackie Mason is. The difference between a Jew and a Gentile. What did they do? The boo, the ba, the boo. And so I brought the mensch on the bench with me. Brought my three wise men. Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Brought them with me. Packed them in the bag. And then I also brought my mensch on the bench. So my mensch has been to Israel as well. (laughs) I've been to Israel. My three wise men have been to Bethlehem. And my mensch on the bench has been to Jerusalem. (laughs) But what I wanted to talk about, uh, we saw some amazing sights while we were there. I'm a big fan of uh, the artist Mark Chagall. Love his work. Once again, Mark Chagall, Jewish artist. We even have a, a, a small little reproduction. Not, I mean, it's nothing. It's not expensive or anything, but a small little picture of his of his um, of his fiddler, his famous fiddler picture, Green Fiddler, that we have uh, framed. And uh, I just, I, I've always been captivated by his work. It, it, it feels so strong and yet so innocent. Soft in its, in its, in its curves, um, but there's a real humanity to it. it. It just draws me in. I've seen many of his famous works, uh, luckily enough, around the world in, in, um, in exhibitions and on display at muse- museums around the world. Here in Chicago, there are several Chagall paintings, and then most notably, there's Chagall windows on display. And I I always, whenever I go to the Art Institute, I always visit the Chagall windows. Just love to, to, to look at those when the light shines through and the imagery is always so, as I said before, there's almost a childlike nature to his work, but it's also very poignant in the images that he creates. Also in Chicago, at the Chase Building, there's a outdoor Chagall mural, which if you've never seen, it's on Dearborn. Uh, you should definitely see that. People just walk by that every day, not even turning to look at it. It's Mark Chagall. My wife worked in that building for several years, and I would drop her off quite a bit. And every, every day I would just stop the car for a second and look at the Chagall mural. Oh, it's beautiful. In Israel, at a um, in a medical center in in the synagogue of a hospital in Jerusalem, there are twelve Chagall windows. When we were in Budapest a few years ago, there were several windows in. Um, Or was that, oh, I'm sorry. Was that, no, no, that was, I'm sorry. No, were there some in Budapest? There were certainly some in Zurich, Switzerland, in a church. Yeah, there was Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, We were on the same trip. That's why I get that confused. But but here in the synagogue, 12 windows, stained glass windows, uh, three on each wall. That you look above, and the, and the, and the, and near the ceiling of the synagogue, all designed by Mark Chagall and meant to represent twelve windows, to represent the twelve tribes of of Israel, starting with with Abraham. And apparently, I mean, he was he was he was getting on in age when he was asked to. designed these windows for this new synagogue. It was in the late 50s, and representatives from the, the hospital approached him, and he was getting on in age, and they came to him and, and offered this proposal and explained, and they were really trying to convince him, because, I mean, after all, this is Mark Chagall. At this point, he is a, a world-renowned artist, and they're hoping that that he will grant them the honor of working with them and designing windows for their synagogue it's not a it's not no it's no small ask at this point in mark chagall's career to ask such a well-known artist to do this and uh, so there they put together his proposal and they're they're really laying it on strong you know obviously trying to uh, impress on him. Don't forget at this time, you know, Israel was, was, uh, became a state, a recognized state in 1948. So, in, in, you know, in, by the time they came to him in the late fifties, Israel was only 10 years old in theory. Israel had been around for a long time, obviously centuries, but it's always been conquered and always been, and it still is sadly, and, um, and always in a state of instability, but uh, so this was no small ask until they received his answer. So they get through, you know, giving this presentation and trying to appeal to his, his uh, pride in, in, in being a Jew and the importance of the symbolicness in, 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 in Israel trying to establish itself as a as a haven and a country of its own, an independent country. So they're really laying it on strong. And when they're done, Mark Chagall looks at the group that came there to ask him if he would participate in designing the stained glass windows for the synagogue at this Jerusalem Medical Center, the Hadassah University Medical Center, and uh, and his his only response to them was, "What took you so long to ask?" <laughs> he said, "For years, I've wanted to give something and and participate and and contribute." to Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, no one's asked. <laughs> what took you so long to ask? And so it took him a few years did all the the work, you know, by hand and and all the sketches and and then the process of making stained glass. And in 1962 Chagall himself came to the synagogue And dedicated those windows. So they've been there now for over 60 years. And they are quite a moving sight to see. Thankfully, when we were there, the sun was out. And we were there around the noontime hour. So the sun was shining brightly through the Chagall windows at the uh, Hadassah University Medical Center Synagogue. And it was quite a sight very moving Uh, as a fan of his art. uh, I was just captivated and, and as a interesting interested observer of the Jewish faith, it was interesting to look at each window, as I said before, which represented each tribe of Israel. And so the images in each window Included different aspects of what each tribe of Israel stood for. And so, for instance, in one, there were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. One of the the different tribes of Israel. And so, uh, very interesting just to see the different imagery and the messages. Some were very violent. Israel, the Jews have had a... A very violent, uh, you know, history. So some of the windows uh, portrayed some very tense and violent images while others were very peaceful and uh, very optimistic. So when you took in these 12 windows as a whole, when you stood in front of the three on one side and then you turned and there was another three and then you turned around another three, another three, you really, you, it, it, you know, different colors. Some windows were blue, some were yellow, some were green, some were red, depending on the messages he was trying to convey for each tribe and the imagery that he portrayed in each window. When taken together individually, they were moving and compelling, and then when you just kind of stood in one place and turned around, it, it, they they just all uh, he'll hit you. It, um, very moving. Um, I'm so happy to have seen that. Being a Chagall fan, it was very exciting. And then to just see it regardless, it was hard to be to not be impressed. Interestingly enough, uh, there was uh, the, the infamous Six-Day War in the 60s in Israel, and for and the in that the building was bombed, and four of the windows were were damaged. They were extensively damaged, sadly. And Mark Chagall, you know, a few years older now, um, he sent a message to the uh, to the hospital and said, um, "You take care of the hospital." You take care of the patients. You take care of the country. I'll take care of the windows. <laughs> and he himself went back and repaired and replaced the damaged windows, four of them. And uh, and there they stand. And uh, quite a sight to see. That was certainly a high point of of the trip for me to see. In Israel, so many different sites. As I said, religious, artistic, historical, modern. It's uh, it's quite is it's quite a city. When you go to the old city, you see the Golden Gate, and uh, as I said before, you know the Wailing Wall and uh, the temple the temple uh, dome. You know, in the, the that gold dome that is. Is present from everywhere you look uh it's just uh it's quite a spot as i said all the re- the, the the um the jewish religion sites king david's tomb as well as many of the christian sites of via de La Rosa, where jesus carried the cross and the uh the, the, the church of the holy sepulcher which commemorates spots where Jesus was crucified as well as where he was buried and obviously, according to tradition, uh, resurrected from Uh, the the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was betrayed and handed over. He was betrayed by Judas's kiss and and handed over to the Roman soldiers. Uh, You know, it's just everywhere you go, Where, where the Virgin Mary was born in the church of saint anne as well as ancient temples where with uh, mikvah baths and uh, and it, it's just the, the it's it's history wherever you look it really is but then you're also faced with some realities of the 21st century thankfully I was I never you know, right now, even as I speak, I don't know if you've if you've listened or watched some of the news of late, but there's a lot of turmoil right now in Israel right now. Now, thankfully, when we were there in in late January, there wasn't the kind of tension and political internal turmoil that's going on. There's there was a change. There was a, there was an election at the end of, of 2022. There was a, a a change in, in government. A former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu, was. Brought back into power, and because he was backed by many, conservative, very right wing, uh, factions, within the the uh, the country. Uh, there are some new legislation and new types of uh, laws that uh, that are coming in that many feel are, are overly strong and actually in some ways stripping the country of its checks and balances in its democracy government. So there's a lot of turmoil going on right now. Netanyahu has always been a a very controversial figure especially with more liberal minded people he's a he's a stro- he's a very hard line uh you know leader conservative side leaning more conservative than liberal and very committed and very dedicated to uh protecting israel and uh and making it Sure, making sure that it it remains its, it keeps its sovereignty and that it is never, uh, uh, you know, wiped away again from the face of the earth as many of its enemies have vowed to do. So he is very adamant in that, and some believe that he is getting a little too right wing with some of his recent um, moves, giving more power to the legislature and taking away some of the power of the Supreme Court. What makes our system work is that all three branches, in theory, are have the same amount of power. There isn't one stronger than the other. And each one can check and balance the other. So the legislature puts checks on the president The Supreme Court puts checks on the legislature. And sometimes the president, you know, the president has an influence on the Supreme Court because the president names the justices. And in some cases, the legislature also has a has a hand because they approve whoever the president. So there's all these dotted lines. And so that's where we, uh, we, we have a, 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 a sense of check and balance. So there's not one branch of government that yields too much power. What's happening now in Israel, many fear that Netanyahu is, is stripping a lot of the checks and balance power away from its court and putting most of it in, a, in the legislature. And that scares people. Um, so, but thankfully, when we were there in late January, the the government was just, you know, this new government that Netanyahu was putting together was just in its infancy and wasn't really enacting many of these moves that are now two months later or so beginning to take form and take effect. So much more turmoil and chaos going on, at least from what I'm reading in the country and and in Jerusalem than when we were there just two months ago, thankfully. We didn't feel any of that political turmoil or distraction like that, so we were able to enjoy and take in all the altruistic and visual delights that Israel has and Jerusalem has, thankfully. Although I must say, while we were there, Our last day in Jerusalem, we came back from a tour. We're going to leave early the next morning, like two or three in the morning. We came back to our room and we turned on the television. There's really CNN was really the only thing we could really watch that was in English. Talked about that, that language barrier. And this way it was nice because we were able to keep up on what was going on at home. We were going to be gone for 16 days, so, you know, a lot of things can happen in two weeks. So, And I'm a news junkie anyway, so I liked having the news on. But we came back to our room, put the TV on, and there was a story that earlier in the afternoon, the Israeli government had bombed a Palestinian refugee camp and killed more than 20 people and they did so because they feared there was a, a terrorist plot that was very close to being executed by some you know palestinian terrorists and so they they bombed this refugee camp and it certainly sent shockwaves through israel and palestine and there were a lot of uh, concern that you know it's, it's 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 an ongoing conflict and so now what would the palestinians do in response and so that night we were watching the, and this wasn't, it wasn't close to Jerusalem, but it doesn't matter. You're, you're in the country, and suddenly there was this potential for some kind of a war. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of terrorism on both sides of the borders in Israel and in Palestine. And so there is a question of safety. In fact, the hotel we were staying in was a very well-known hotel, very historic hotel. A place where, where local as well as international dignitaries and celebrities stayed, called the the uh, the Camp David, i not Camp, <laughs> the King David um, Hotel. Uh, Anwar Sadat and 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 Menachem Begin and American presidents and and uh, Arab leaders and. Leaders from every country, princes, royalty, Hollywood royalty, uh, major stars of the past and present, all stay there. In fact, on the sixth floor of the of the uh, King David Hotel, that's the presidential suite. The sixth floor is a presidential suite, and apparently, it is both bomb proof and rocket proof. Bomb proof and rocket proof. So clearly, it's it's a well known building. It's very prominent building. It's not a huge big skyscraper, but it's a very big, thick, prominent building where 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 heads of state, President Biden's been there recently. Donald Trump was there. Every you know, they have this giant sign in book that they have in the lobby. This big old book. They have several volumes of it, and it's encased. And every day they they switch a page to show you some of the dignitaries that have stayed there. And while we were there, I mean, there okay, there's Mikhail Gorbachev's, you know, oh. autograph and sign in, and many others. So a major place. It, this this hotel was bombed in the fifties. Half of it was destroyed. It's it's clearly a target. It's a well-known place. And it had been bombed by terrorists in the past during conflicts. And here we are staying in it, and now the Israeli government had bombed a place, so you're expecting the Palestinians most likely are going to try to respond in some way. The news was was talking about how this was the most serious, uh, you know, Bombing event in more than 10 years. And here we are in the country. Eee! Now, we were leaving early the next morning. But I, I I actually went down into the lobby just to see, like, okay, are are people reacting to this? Now, many of the tour, I mean, the, the, the lobby was bustling. And, you know, tourists are tourists. But I was actually going down to look at the staff. That's who would know what's really going on. The tourists are oblivious. You know, tourists are, are not paying attention to the news of the day. They're worried about their tours and their, their dinner reservations, right? So I went down to get a get a little, you know, insight as to how serious or how, how much of a security threat were we in at this hotel. Were, were there, was, there, was there a lot more security presence? In the lobby, I'm looking in the eyes and the faces of the of the people, in, you know, working behind the desks and the reception desks, and the you know the the, the doormen and the people walking around and the security people, just to get a sense. Like, do they feel? Do they look a little more on guard and attention? Is there a little worry on their face? I didn't see a lot, but I saw a little. I don't want to read too much into it. But we were thankfully we were leaving the next day. We found out later that the, the next day the Palestinians, in fact, did fire rockets toward Israel. But Israel has a very sophisticated anti-missile technology. And they were able to destroy the missiles before they got into uh, the Israeli airspace. But they did try to, to, to respond in some way the next day. Now, by then, I think we are already in the air and on our way to Cairo, but still. And while we were in Cairo, a couple of days after the initial Israeli bombing, a young Palestinian guy in his early 20s, not sanctioned at all by the Palestinian government, but just on his own, some rogue, killed seven Israelis in Jerusalem. We were leaving on... Um, on saturday morning or friday no friday morning and i believe a couple days later uh the uh no was it yeah friday morning maybe thursday or friday morning regardless um a young palestinian killed seven israelis coming out of a synagogue in jerusalem i'm not sure where it was if it was close to where we were staying but tensions were high and now tensions are even high within Israel itself not even the israel palestinian conflict but now internally so there've been very there've been a lot of protests going on we didn't so thankfully we were there at the calm before the storm and we were able to just take in all the interesting uh and uh and impressive sights and sounds and smells of Jerusalem and Israel without any of these political or outside forces or distractions or potential dangers that, that do lie there. But you but and I and I must say, I, I never you know, people said, wow you're really brave for going to Israel and Egypt. That's such a a tinderbox part of the world. And I guess that's true, but there comes a point where, you know, you just have to, if you want to do and see something, there's, there, there's risks every day we leave our house, right? So whether, it's, uh, whether you risk when you get in the car and, and you're five minutes from your house or you're, you know, 9,000 miles away from home. There's risk. And uh you know, everybody was using this argument during COVID. We have to you know what? We, I want to live my life. And while I certainly was very conservative, at least during the early days of COVID, um there was there comes a point where I said, you know what, I, I want to see Israel, I want to see Egypt. I know there is some potential risk factors in going there, but um I'm going to take that risk, and I'm so glad I did. I have to say, I never felt unsafe on the entire trip in either country, Israel or, or Egypt. I never felt unsafe. However, especially in Israel, you could feel the tension. I mean, there literally is the border of Israel and Palestine. There is a wall built it's right there it's you see it especially when you're up on top looking at you know an overview of the city there's the wall as it as it serpentines around and as you drive to the outskirts of israel there's the wall graffiti on both sides it you can feel the tension when you get closer there in fact we had to go into palestine because that's where Bethlehem is. It's in Palestine, and it's interesting. It you can when you cross over, you can really feel and see the difference in the cultures in Israel. Um, as I said before, in embracing, there's no question. Israel wants to be a very uh, you know thriving uh modern 21st century city in its business districts and in its areas and its tourism but then it also as i said um nods to its its ancient history so both sides coexist but you could see that israel you know is very much it embraces its 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 past but it's also investing in its future to be a Uh, a very metropolitan and and modern and futuristic forward-looking city and world power. Palestine, on the other side, is very different as soon as you cross over. It feels more rural, even when you go into the cities. It feels more ancient, not as modernized or industrialized. It looks in many neighborhoods you go through. It looks like it probably looked centuries ago. It's a very religious-based city, a an ancient religion to which the people are very uh, dedicated and loyal to, and so you could feel and see that there's certainly modern aspects involved it's not but in many ways despite some modern uh, you know parts of of whatever society needs right like electricity and things like that in terms of its look and its feel and its culture the the way the people are dressed the way the people act the way the buildings, all low buildings, not very high buildings, many of them very old. There doesn't seem to be at least the, the, the sections that we saw, not a lot of overt moder- modern modernization. They're not they're not all eight hundred years old, right? Or eight thousand years old, whatever it might be, five thousand years old. But there's certainly a very distinct look. It feels like a very old city. It almost feels like in many cases you're going back in time, which makes sense because it is a culture based on, you know, this very, very, um, to the ancient religion of Islam and the Muslim religion. And based on the Quran, this is, you know, thousands of years ago. So very distinct, Differences between Israel and Palestine. And you can see why the tensions are there. This is a small, relatively small land mass. They are right next to one another. They are basically separated by, you know, a wall and some natural borders and some highways and streets. And these are, these are centuries-old conflicts. These are religious, deeply held religious conflicts. And we know how people take their faith so strong, some people. So it's no surprise that there are conflicts between these two countries because they are right on top of each other, literally. There's no, there's no escaping it. It's literally a line. There's, there's not. They're not separated by a, 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 an ocean, or separated. They're separated by a stoplight. And we we encountered that at one point. I will always remember this story. I said at the beginning when I was talking about to, you know explaining a lot of things. When you go on a trip, you 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 look at your itinerary and there's all these different sights you want to see and you can't wait to see this and you can't wait to see that. And oftentimes the most memorable things of a vacation or any kind of trip that you take, while those those sites you always wanted to see certainly become lifetime memories, but then there's things that happen on a trip that you never could plan for, that you never could foresee. And those human moments or those little occurrences that happen while you're on your way to see those sites when you're dealing with outside forces or you're dealing with other people as you navigate your way to to take in whatever a city or a, a, a country has to offer many times events happen to you that you could never foresee that you can never plan for, and they become just as memorable and just as re- important and just as ingrained in your mind when about that trip as seeing those sights you always wanted to see. And this is an event that I will always remember about our trip to Israel. And there is no way I ever thought this would happen. I never planned for it. Never expected it. As it was happening, I couldn't even really get a grasp of it. Still kind of wondering what the heck happened there. But my gosh, it was certainly memorable and uh, will forever have an indelible mark in my memory on its own as a story and then in connection with our visit to Israel. So... We are going to the Church of the Nativity in Palestine. Earlier in the day, we saw some sites in Jerusalem. We went to a restaurant, and now it's kind of 1 o'clock, 1.30, and we are going to go to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Up to this point on our trip, we had been, mostly in the city of Jerusalem in Israel. But now we were going to cross the border and go into Palestine for the first time. What to expect? Well, we had a a very uh, nice and knowledgeable guide with us named Eli, who was with us for all four days and got to know him, and he was a very nice guy. He was Jewish. Very proud of it. Was very knowledgeable about the country and the sites. He's been doing this for many years. He also had some very strong religious beliefs that he imparted on us. And he also had some very strong political re- beliefs that he imparted on us at times. Sometimes I felt like he was proselytizing a little. He was almost lecturing. And I didn't know how appropriate that was. I'm there i'm I'm there not to really be indoctrinated into the political world. It's nice to get some facts about it, but not so much opinion. He maybe sometimes crossed the line, but not overly, not to the point where it was overly um, uncomfortable, but there were times when it was sort of getting there, and then he reined himself in but overall very nice guy, very knowledgeable. And very glad that we were with him because he really did give a nice overview of the country and and his knowledge of its history as well as its present day and its future. So a very good guy. So now we're on the bus and we've been there for a couple of days now. So we're all getting to know each other pretty well within our group of 16 that are on this excursion. We see each other every day. We're all staying in the same hotel. We're all on the same bus. We're all going everywhere together for the most part so we're getting to know each other and we're being getting very comfortable with ellie and so now we are going to go off to the uh the church of of the nativity and we've gone to many different we went to the church of the holy sepulcher we went to all these different sites and there was never any kind of uh you know problems or okay here we go all right just like any other tour But now we're driving, and he says, okay, everyone, I have to explain a few things to you. Um, We are going into Palestine. And uh, I am Jewish, and our bus driver here today with us is also Jewish. And um, our bus driver doesn't feel comfortable driving into Palestine. And so the seriousness of that didn't really initially hit and, and and the implications of it really didn't hit until Ellie continued to explain the situation. Uh, it is against the law for Jewish people to be in Palestine. They can be arrested. Not all would be, but they could be. In fact, on the border, there are big red signs. I've got pictures of the signs, so I'm not making this up. It's in many different languages it's in Arabic, it's in Hebrew, and it's in English. And basically, it says that that according to Palestinian law, If you are of Jewish heritage coming into Palestine, your life could be in danger. That's what it says. So at first, it's like, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Our bus driver doesn't feel comfortable going into Palestine. What does that mean? But after I see this sign, I get it. Now, Ellie says that usually on these tours even though he's jewish they will have a palestinian driver so he feels comfortable and if there is any kind of problem if palestinian soldiers or palestinian authorities wanted to search the bus and find out what's going on and validate that this is a bus of american tourists and not any threats or any you know potential Israeli or Jewish people, because they have every right to do it. Once again, you're in a foreign country. They don't have the same liberties that we do. It's a great movie in the 80s called The Falcon and the Snowman with Timothy Hutton and, um, and Sean Penn about real story, real, true story about two young California guys that uh, started to sell secrets to the Russians And they were spies, basically. And they were arrested for it. It's a great movie. One of my favorite movies from the 80s. True story. And at one point, the Sean Penn character is being arrested by the Mexican government who are in this town, who are basically under the thumb of the Soviet Union, and he's like, hey, I'm an American. I'm an American. You can't arrest me. I didn't do anything. You can't just take me into custody. And the authority says, this is not America. <laughs> In fact, David Bowie wrote a song. is the theme song with Pat Metheny called This Is Not America, which is really it's a, one of my favorite Bowie songs. Look that one up on Google. This Is Not America by David Bowie. I love that song. Um. And so that was the reality here. I'm talking about now, you know, once again, at the beginning of the podcast, talking about being in a foreign country in a foreign land and feeling out of place. Here I felt very out of place suddenly. I hadn't up to this point. But suddenly the political realities of where we were and what it's like to live in this tinderbox, this pressure cooker of a part of the world suddenly became very real. Our bus driver was afraid to go into Palestine, and I could see why when you see this red sign that says, if you're of Jewish heritage, your life could be in danger. In theory, Ellie, our guide, and this bus driver, when we were in Palestine, after we crossed over from Israel into Palestine, in theory, if the authorities came and saw that they were Israeli, they could have at the very least been arrested. that's real stuff that's real life that's the the uh, that's the israeli-palestinian conflict right in your face and we're here on on pleasure right (laughs) or so we thought so ellie says look um but we are going to go to the church so we have made an arrangement we are going to switch buses. And we are going to get a Palestinian driver. And it's also going to have a Palestinian guide. So when we when we are in Palestine, there should be no reason for the authorities to stop us or question us because they will know that this is a Palestinian bus. Palestinian tour in theory. And they will see that the bus driver is Palestinian and the the guide is Palestinian. So there's no reason for them to question anything. He said, now, I will still be with you. So don't worry, because, I mean, this is our only connection, right? Without Ellie, we're on our own. So Ellie says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to hand you off to someone that you don't know. And who knows where they drive you, right? So Ellie's got our best interests in mind here. He's still our caretaker to some extent, but he said, but I am not going to be sitting at the front of the bus like the tour guide. When, I, when, 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 when we switch buses, I am going to be sitting back with you because I am going to be a part of your group. And if any authorities come on this bus and start to ask questions or even check credentials or something, But if they have any questions or any suspicions about this, our bus, you have to tell them that I am with your group. I'm one of you in the group. He said, because they'll be able to look at me and tell that I'm Israeli. So you have to tell them that I'm from America. I might look Israeli. I may look Jewish, but I'm not. I'm American. He speaks English now. He may have been, you know, he may, you know, his story would be that I was born here, yes, but I'm an American citizen now, and I'm here visiting. He says, "You're my security. (laughs) We are his security." For the past couple of days, he's been our guide and our security, but suddenly now, in this situation, we have to vouch for him and basically lie, so he might potentially not get arrested. What's going on here? We're going to switch buses. We're going to switch this. I'm going to be sitting here. And he goes, but don't worry. You know, don't feel unsafe. You know, the bus driver and I are packing. Are packing? I don't know how many people really heard him say that. I heard him say that. Packing means he's got got a gun on him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how many people heard that because i did not feel like i did not hear a gasp or any kind of reaction from many of the people once again i don't even know how much the people were really absorbing of what he was saying but i was listening and i was getting it and i was like we are like in a james bond movie what's going on here we are we are we are in the middle of international intrigue we're going to be we are going to be switching buses and switching we are we are We are like spies, We are, and we are being asked to lie. And I even asked him, like, do you do this? Is this common? Do you always do this kind of subterfuge? He says, well, no, because I said before, we usually have a Palestinian driver, so there's really not, but this time we have, you know, me and him are both Jewish, and so there could be some red flags. Holy smokes! This was nowhere on my itinerary. As I said before, you can't ex- you can't anticipate or plan or expect this to happen as part of your trip. But now it is a permanent memory and a permanent uh, moment of this trip forever. So now we turn down this small, quiet street. Almost like a part street part alley because I said before the town of or the you know the, 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 the city of Bethlehem and the, the Palestinian area is very steeped in the past so the the, 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 the the roads and the streets are very narrow and cramped and and the whole city is like that it's just you know it's an, it's an ancient city it hasn't been overly modernized so we go down this little narrow street that's like half Street half alley no one on it really. And then there's this smaller little bus, almost, you know, we were on a big, you know, kind of luxury bus that you, you know, tour bus that you always see, you know, on streets and the highways and things like that. And now we're going to get into what looked more like a, um, you know, like one of the, 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 the buses that pick you up at the airport to take you to the, to the terminal or they take you to the rent a car, one of those kind of things. We had like 16 group people in our group. So it's a smaller bus and, and we were, we used every seat. So now we get into this much smaller, tighter, cramped bus. But when we get out of our bus, right? And now we're, 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 we're getting out of our bus and we're going to go into this other bus in this little street. And it, it feels, as I said before, like we're in some spy movie. Like we're in James Bond. I'm even, I'm looking around like, is anyone watching us? Is anyone going to start shooting? I mean, I was kind of serpentining. I was like moving like a snake, you know? And so I wasn't, I was like a moving target. And I wanted to get into that other bus quickly. It just, you know, it was just—it felt very spy novelish, very undercover. <laughs> so now we all get in the bus. And he said, "Okay, we're going we're to come back here later and pick our bus up, okay?" But I feel like I'm in this. I feel like I'm in the Falcon and the Snowman because there's there's all this kind of secrecy, and we're going to do this and and tell them that. There's you know we all got stories now. It's like what the hell is going on? I just want to go bring my three wise men and get a picture at the Church of the Nativity where Jesus was born. I didn't know I had to go through all this. I didn't know I was going to be interrogated by the Palestinian police, and possibly—I mean, what if they? What if they? You know, what if they? They? What if they did come on our bus, and what if they did take our guide away, or what if they took us all? Oh, you—you said he wasn't. You're a liar. You go too. What? What protection do I have? You hear about this all the time, right? I mean, look what happened in the seventies. You know the Israelis, or, or Israeli terrorists, just took over uh, the American embassy and kept American citizens for like two years. You know, I'm I'm always very paranoid, and I and I sometimes I have too much information, so I'm thinking like, what if they take our bus captive here and arrest us all? What do you know? Yeah. Then who do we call? We got to call the Empire. I mean, I mean, all these stories are floating in my mind. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I just want my, I just want a picture with my three wise men. I have my three wise men. Could you imagine if I got arrested and they bring me into a Palestinian, um, you know, police station and they check my bags, and I've got statues of the three wise men? (laughs) This is like, uh, you know. (laughs) It was like some spy novel. What's that? What's the movie uh, when the guy went to the got thrown into a Turkish prison in the eighties with drugs? I didn't have drugs on me, but you know, hey, what's inside these three wise men? They would have probably broken the three wise men to see if I had anything inside. Was I smuggling something? <laughs> Who knows what could have happened. So we get in there, and now Ellie is sort of sitting next to me on the other side of the aisle. You know, there's like two seats on one side and one aisle on the other. Small bus. And as he sits down and he's talking, I look on his lap, and he's got this little leather pouch. And I realize that's where his gun is. Don't forget, in Israel, everyone, everyone, men and women, boys and girls, when you turn 18, you are immediately uh, inducted into the army. It's mandatory. Every Israeli, every Jewish person from Israel ultimately is a soldier at one time. There's, there's no volunteer army, and there's no draft. You are, you're just in. When you turn 18, uh, men have a three-year hitch, mandatory three-year hitch when you're, when you're 18. Girls, women have a mandatory two-year. And 20 years after, you are in the reserves automatically. So until you're into your mid forties, when you're getting older, and then you're not really, uh, you know, a valuable soldier. But you're never really not in the military. Everyone. So Ellie and our bus driver both packing, as he told us, but they are both well versed in 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 firearms. They were these guys were were one time soldiers. As is every Israeli. Of a certain age. When we were in our cab on the way from the Tel Aviv airport to Jerusalem, we started talking to our cab driver. He was probably in his early sixties, and he was telling how he was in the reserves until a few years ago. He used to be a paratrooper, and I mean, this guy's driving a cab, and he was twenty-five years in the reserves, and you know, in, he was going to, you know. He, was actually, he, was, he actually had a problem. He was hurt in, in one of uh, some conflict. When he was a young guy, when he was 19, he was hurt. The government was going to give him a pension because of his injury. And his dad said, no, you're not taking this, this pension. Once you get better, you're going back. You're not taking anything from the government. You're giving to the government. You are serving. That's the mindset there. So I see, you know, I, so then I'm talking to Ellie and I look and I just point to his, you know, the, the little pouch on his, you know, coming, you know, that's sitting on his lap. And I said, is that, and he just nodded and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to say anything to anybody, but oh my gosh. So, and even when we did get out of our bus and we we're walking down the street to go into the, a, a, a soldier with a machine gun visible and when you're driving through the streets of Israel and in Palestine you see and even in Egypt you see people on the streets there is a there is a there is a military and police presence and they are around not oppressively but they're there and they are some in fatigue some in not and there's their guns there are machine guns straddled to their hips So, yeah, there are some outward signs of this is not America, as I said before. And then you are in a foreign country, and it's not just that there's a different language. But as I said before, I never felt unsafe, but I certainly was aware that I was in a different place and there were tensions there. Now, thankfully, I mean, so the, and, and the soldier did question our guide, like, okay, who's in your group? And where are you going? And then he must have told them, I'm an American tourist going into the church. And then he let us go. And then we were done. I got the picture at the spot with my three wise men. I was very happy. We got back on our little rickety bus. We went back to our scary little alley. We got off our little rickety bus. I serpentined back onto our nice comfortable bus. We said goodbye to the Palestinian driver and the Palestinian tour guide. Ellie was back at the front of the bus as our guide, and we pulled out and we got back over the border and we were back in Israel and we got back to the hotel and our our uh, you know James Bond spy novel experience was over. So I will always remember when I think about going to get the picture of my three wise men brought all the way from the United States, packed in my bag into Israel, when I went to get their picture taken, brought them back, it took them 2,000 years, and my Melchior and my Balthazar and my Gaspar traveled all the way from Chicago to Bethlehem, and we're back on the spot where Jesus was born. It took him 2,000 years. They finally got back there. But in order for them to get back there, I never would have thought that I would have been involved in some spy movie, spy novel, <laughs> filled with international intrigue, which only added to the experience, only added to the memory. Now thankfully nothing dangerous or bad happened so I can laugh about it and look back on it with a smile and with a positive memory. But I have to say while it was happening it was a little interesting to say the least. A little sketchy. Was was looking forward to to getting off that bus at least. And going and then getting back on our bus eventually. And everything worked out fine. So kudos to to Ellie for taking care of us. So we were able to visit this space, this this site, which you do want to see. Especially I brought my, my three wise men all the way from the United States. I would have been very disappointed if you said, you know, we can't go into Palestine because our bus driver does not want to drive. So he saw, he found a way. I mean, did we bend the laws? Yes, yes, we did. Did we put ourselves in some danger? To some extent, looking back on it, oh, it was exciting, it was fun, and it was a new adventure, and it was a great memory. Thankfully, nothing crazy happened. But you can't plan for that stuff. You can't anticipate it. And suddenly that aspect is just as prominent a memory and just as interesting as a story, if not more, than the original goal was. I mean, this great story should be that I bought my three wise men from Chicago and brought them and got a picture of them at the spot where Jesus was born, right? That's the fun, cool story. That was the expected story. Now I've got another story tied to that, and to be honest with you, that one, in many ways, is much more interesting and much more dramatic than me bringing a couple of statues and taking a picture. <laughs> but that's what I enjoy about travel. You get to see things and experience things and things happen to you and they become life memories. And I have to say that from now on, whenever I see my three wise men, when I put them in my nativity stable on January 6th, I will remember that they were at the Church of the Nativity, at the spot that is accepted as the birthplace of Jesus. And I will remember the adventure and the intrigue that had to happen for them to get there, which is actually pretty fitting because it wasn't, the three wise men had to make a very long, difficult journey to get to the stable, according to the, 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 the Christ birth story, right? They traversed afar. And now my three wise men also had to go through a very difficult and dangerous journey. They traversed afar through danger, through international intrigue, but they made it to the stable to the birth site of Jesus. Biblical symmetry. I love it. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Fodtastic. Every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. me tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcast, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 356. I'm Jim Toronto. I am on business. I'm only here for fun. we have been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podcast from the end of the web to your screen.